Yeah, we're showing a video of uh, this message because we live in a world where COVID comes to visit once in a while, and uh, it came to visit me earlier this week, and it's been nothing serious. It's just like a bad head cold, but uh, all the same, um, it is what it is, and uh, so I apologize that uh, here we are 27 years into the church. We've never done this before, and now here it is that we're doing it. And uh, the biggest price is the price that the people here in the building are paying because normally they get the privilege of really getting to experience my dashing good looks, but, you know, it doesn't come across that way in video. So, so anyway, it is what it is. We're glad that you're joining us today, whether you're at home or whether you are here in the building. A number of years ago, um, I made it a commitment, and I've commented on this numerous times, that my commitment is to read through the Bible every year. Now, that hadn't always been the case, because it was like 44 years ago that I gave my life to Christ. And in that very first year, in fact, in that first five months or so, I read all the way through the Bible. Um, but uh, full disclosure, over the next 10 to 12, 13, 14 years, somewhere in that time frame, I probably only read all the way through the Bible one other time. And, uh, um, and it was at that point in time, I came under a conviction that if I truly believe that this is the Word of God, then I shouldn't be dilly-dallying around with it. I shouldn't just be spending time reading my favorite parts, but rather instead I ought to be exposing myself to the full counsel of God regularly. And so anyway, that's why um, quite a few years ago I made that commitment to read all the way through the Bible every year. And, and I've actually done that with one or two exceptions, like one of those being the year that my son died. Um, I didn't get it done that year, but, but, uh, uh, but this has been a commitment I've stuck with. Now, I say that to say this, that I've made an observation. You know, having read through all of these different passages, so many of them have become familiar passages because at least I know I'm going to run across them once a year. But the thing is, they strike me differently at times. You know, there's something about a passage that maybe I've read a dozen different times, but then that 13th time I'm reading it, then all of a sudden it's just like, whoa, I didn't quite see that in it the other times. And one of the reasons that I think that that is the case is because I, I personally am at, an, at a different place in my life than what I was the other times that I read it. Let me give you a couple examples here. Because this year, as I've been reading it through, uh, a couple of the passages that have stood out to me, one of them is Joshua chapter 9, and a good portion of that chapter, it records the story of when, under the leadership of Joshua, the Israelites are going into the promised land, and, uh, you know, and they've just defeated Jericho, which was no small undertaking. Jericho was a big, fortified city. Um, and yet the Israelites, after having crossed the Red Sea and all of that stuff having happened, you know, now they defeat Jericho, and then they end up defeating Ai, and word is spreading among the people in the land of Canaan. 
And so many of the different kings and nations that make up the land of Canaan, they're kind of getting together and combining their armies because they're going to go against Israel uh, to try to stop, you know, what Israel is about to do. But there is an exception. There is a group of people called the Gibeonites, and that's what Joshua chapter 9 is talking about. The Gibeonites, they realize they can join all the other people of the land of Canaan, but they think that that's a lost cause. They think that, man, God is fighting for the Israelites, and there's no way we're going to be able to successfully oppose them. So the Gibeonites cook up a plan. It's a ruse of sorts that um, even though they're just a stone's throw away down the road from where the Israelites are at, that they send a couple of their people um, packing some supplies and like the, the wine is in parched um, bags and the, mold, the bread is moldy. And, but they're intentionally doing all that to make it look like these people have been traveling a long, long, long time. And so they go to Joshua and the Israelites and they're trying to get Israel to sign a treaty with them. Now, the Israelites, they know we're not supposed to be signing treaties with anyone in the land of Canaan, but because the Gibeonites so successfully are deceiving, the Israelites do it. Here, here's a key verse in that passage. Verse 14, it says, The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. That's a key statement, but did not inquire of the Lord. But, you know, they checked out the moldy bread and the parched, you know, wine bags and all of this kind of stuff. And it was just like, man, it seems like on the up and up here, these guys really are who they say that they are. So they went ahead and signed a treaty with them. And you know what? That really came back and bit Israel in a big way, both in the immediate future, because when you go into the next chapter, you start seeing, you know, some of the immediate ramifications that come about. But also, generations later, when the first king of Israel, Saul, does some things to the Gibeonites, he is breaking this treaty, and wow, Israel plays a high, pays a high price you know, for doing that. So, so uh, anyway, you stack this up, this was a bad decision on Israel's part. But it all can be traced back to what it says there in verse 14. And that is that they did not inquire of the Lord. They didn't seek God's direction in it, okay? So now, as you read on in the Bible, I came to another passage generations later this is 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and a good portion of this chapter records for us um, an incident that involves one of the few good kings of the southern kingdom. His name was Jehoshaphat, and um, he has some opposing armies that are combining their efforts. The Moabites, the Ammonites are coming together to fight against Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat knows that, boy, the, the odds are stacked up against them, Israel, at this time. And, and so what does Jehoshaphat do? Well, early in that passage, you read this in verse 3. It says, Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he resolved 
to seek the Lord. Boy, what a contrast this is from what Israel did in Joshua chapter 9. He resolved to seek the Lord. Then he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. Now, fasting and praying, that oftentimes, you know, goes hand in hand in the pages of Scripture. And so, so here he is. He's, he's determined he's going to be seeking the Lord because um, he finds himself in a tough spot. And so several verses of that chapter are devoted to Joshua's prayer. But what I want you to see is the very last sentence of that prayer because it is very telling. It says this. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. That's Jehoshaphat. He's pouring out his heart to God. He says numerous things preceding that statement, but that's the way he ends his prayer. We don't know what to do, but we're not taking our eyes off of you, Lord. You see, he was looking for direction. He was looking for help. From the Lord. It's quite a contrast. You compare those two stories, and it's like night and day in the way that they were approaching things. And I think there's a really valuable lesson for us as we get into today's message, and that is this whatever it is that you are experiencing, whatever it is that you are encountering in your life, whether it be something personal, whether it's something in your marriage, whether it's something at work, financial, whatever, whatever it is that that you're encountering right now, the Lord wants you to be looking to him for insight, for discernment, and for direction. I mean, this is a very clear message that is found in the Bible. We are in the middle of a sermon series right now. It's entitled, Finding God's Will for Your Life. And we've talked about things like looking to the Word of God and what, what insight does the Word of God give us. Last Sunday, Kurt was talking about uh, leaning on mentors, you know, people that, that maybe are a little further down the road spiritually in their walk with the Lord than what we are. Oftentimes, those will end up being people that are older than us you know, physically and, and spiritually, but it doesn't always necessarily mean that they've got to be older than us. But we rely upon the counsel of, of godly people um, and, and the benefit that can be arrived at that. Well, today we're talking about prayer, the role that prayer plays in all of this. In determining your course of action, your sense of direction in whatever it is that you're wrestling with right now. You cannot just rely on what your gut is telling you. You cannot rely just on your emotion of the moment uh, because you can't always trust your emotion. And I think Kurt mentioned that in a previous sermon. You can't always trust your heart. Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six say it this way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart do not depend on your own understanding. Seek him, seek his will in all that you do, and he will show you which path to take. Yeah, that's good counsel right there. Good direction for us. So let me talk to you a little bit about prayer today. And I want to start off by showing you a cool verse. And, and I'll go ahead and say it. This is one of those cool verses that's tucked away in a corner of the Old Testament that unless you read through the Bible, you know, intentionally, completely, or unless it happens to pop up in a devotional book, 
you may very well not even be aware of this particular verse, but it's a special verse. It's Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7. It says this, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? Boy, that, isn't that stated well? What other nation, what other group of people in the world you know, have the privilege that we have. Our God is near us whenever we pray to him. Yeah, there's something really special about that. Unfortunately, something that we take for granted oftentimes, but there's some real truth packed into that verse. But in all honesty, a ton of people miss out on it. Even church people miss out on it because of faulty perceptions of prayer because of looking at prayer in incorrect ways. And I got to say, I was one of those people when I was growing up. Um, and I, along with the members in my family, uh, I have four, uh, two brothers and two sisters and, of course, uh, mom and dad. So there were seven in our family. And we said prayers a lot. We really did. We, we said prayers before every meal. We never ate a meal without um, saying prayers. Uh, we said prayers every evening as a family. We would gather in the living room and say prayers. We said prayers in our bed before we would go to sleep at night. We said prayers um, every weekend when we went to church. We said prayers whenever we were in catechism classes. You know, so, so prayer was, you know, um, definitely a part of our weekly schedule. Uh, but yet, I didn't get it. I didn't understand prayer. And perhaps one of these misconceptions I'm going to share with you is something that has been an issue for you as it has been for me. So let me share with you four uh, common misconceptions about prayer. Number one, it's a religious duty. This is how I saw it. I saw it as something that I ought to do, something that I got to do. Otherwise, I'll, in some way or another, I'll be on God's bad list if I don't do it. And more times or not, what it resulted in was meaningless repetition, where I was just saying words to say words, and there really wasn't meaning attached to it. Memorized phrases, religious cliches. You say them over and over and over again. Uh, just to put your time in. It's kind of like punching your time clock with God and thinking that, well, that, that's what prayer is all about. When you think about prayer, or at least it used to be, when I thought about prayer, you know, I thought boring. I mean, it was just boring. It was, it was just a religious-type ritual that I engaged in and did not, certainly did not get any enjoyment out of. The evening prayers, let me tell you a little bit about that. We, we said, as a family, we said the rosary every evening. The whole family would gather in the living room, and some of you, you know, you may know the rosary is like a string of beads, but you don't know much else about it. Others of you know full well how many prayers are packed in to the rosary. And every evening we would do this as a family. And we did that until I was like in fifth grade or so, give or take a year. 
it, every night until I was like in fifth grade and, and my older brother was in like eighth grade and, and for some reason then that was kind of when, when that fell by the wayside. But, but as soon as my older brother Mike and I, we got to be school age, you know, we kind of worked out a thing where whenever mom or dad would say, who wants to lead the rosary tonight? One of us would quickly say, I will, because, because of a very important thing. When you're saying the rosary, only one person begins each one of the prayers, but everybody else responds with the second half of the prayer. And so if you're a part of the responding group, you can have no influence over the speed in which things are being prayed. But if you're a part of the initiator of each prayer, praying the first half of the prayer, then you can talk a lot faster. And you can actually shave several minutes off the length of time that it takes to say a rosary. So, so Mike and I, you know, we, we would always, one of, or the other of us would volunteer to say the rosary, and, uh, and we, we had better things to do, so we wanted to shave a few minutes and speed it up. And so that's exactly what we did. And that illustrates this very point that the misconception about prayer is we see it as a religious duty. We were just punching our time clock with God. You know, let me just say, if prayer is a duty to you, then you have missed the whole point of prayer, okay? A second misconception about prayer is that it is a first aid kit. You know, I remember years ago seeing a fire extinguisher and it had a sign on it. The sign said, use only in case of emergency. And I remember thinking, you know, boy, how perfect of an illustration that is to prayer in regards to the way a lot of people approach prayer. Because prayer is something that it's good to have around in those crisis moments, you know, when you have nowhere else to turn but to turn to prayer. It's, it's viewed by many people as being a last resort. It's not something that you want to jump to too quick, but if, if all else fails, then, yeah, that's, that's where you, you go. That's what you turn to. Uh, and that's so unfortunate that that kind of a mindset exists. I'm reminded of the story of a, a couple of church leaders that were talking and, uh, to each other, and they were talking about a particular family in the church that was going through a really rough time. And, and one of the leaders said something to the effect of, it said, man, this is just really bad. They're going through what they're going through. Um, all we can do is pray. And the other one responded by saying, has it come to that? <laughs> you know, and that's kind of a mindset that sometimes with some people exists. And it's very unfortunate because that is not the mindset that God wants us to have in regards to prayer. Another misconception about prayer is that it's a magic wand. It's... it's uh, this idea that maybe God is kind of like a genie. And if you rub your hands together, you rub your hands together, then poof, you, know, you, you might have something miraculous happen on occasion. And, and that's the way prayer is approached, where you're kind of hoping against hope that what you're wishing for is actually going to come to pass, is going to materialize. And that, too, is unfortunate. Oh, a fourth misconception about prayer is that it's a religious tug of war. 
This actually is a pretty common one. God is seen uh, oftentimes as being a cold-hearted monarch sitting a million miles away out in space. And it's your job to convince him that he ought to do something for you. And so that's what prayer is all about. Prayer is about just kind of trying to wear him down to where he'll finally agree and say, okay, okay, enough. You know, so prayer is kind of like a sales pitch, you know, I guess you could say. You're hoping that God gets so bothered by your nagging him that he'll finally say, okay, uncle, you know, I give, I'll give you what, what it is that you're asking for. Um, and that's too bad because that certainly is not what prayer is all about. But that's how many people see it, one or maybe a combination of those four ways. Like I said, I fell into category number one probably more than any other category. You know, as a matter of fact, do you know what the best-known prayer is that's found in the Bible? Best-known prayer of all. You know, if we handed out a sheet and had you write it down, I would venture to guess that well over 80% of the people in here would agree, you know, and have the right answer on there. You'd say the Lord's Prayer. And I I believe that is the best-known prayer. Although perhaps it shouldn't be called the Lord's Prayer, it should be called the Disciples' Prayer, because in one of the Gospels, it came as a response of the disciples asking Jesus to teach them to pray. And so that's what he did. He gave them this sample prayer to help give them insight, to open their eyes to what prayer can look like. Let me show you something. The best-known place where the Lord's Prayer is found is the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 6, in the verses leading up to the Lord's Prayer, there were a couple things Jesus said that we don't, we don't often tie together with the Lord's Prayer, but we ought to because it's the same context. This is what he said to ramp up to giving the Lord's Prayer. It's Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Jesus said, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Part of what Jesus is saying in those two verses is that we ought to pray sincerely. It it ought to be something really sincere. Not showboating, not trying to impress other people. But no, this is something between you and the Lord. This, This is something sincere that's coming from your heart. And and because part of what Jesus conveys in his teaching is that God doesn't answer insincere prayers. But look at where he goes from here, because the very next verse uh, gives us some keen insight. Verse 7, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Meaningless repetition. Just saying words for the sake of saying words. Lots of words. Over and over words. I don't think there's anything wrong with repeating prayers, but 
they really do need to be heartfelt prayers. Not just words to be saying words. Not just as a form of ritual. Look at the way the Living Bible words verse 7. Don't recite the same prayer over and over as the heathen do who think that prayers are answered only by repeating them again and again. Again, there's biblical passages that talk about, you know, that it's, it's okay to repeat prayers, but not if they're meaningless, not if they're just repetitious sort of things. And then what happens, what follows verse 7? It's the Lord's Prayer. Jesus lays out this sample prayer in verses 9 through 13 of the chapter. Do you see the irony here? Jesus just got warned, just warned them about meaningless repetition, just saying words over and over and over again as though there's going to be something magical that's going to happen as a result of that. And then he gives the Lord's Prayer. And yet, what have people today done with the Lord's Prayer? Guilty. I mean, when I look back at my life, you know, the first 17 years of my life, I prayed the Lord's Prayer hundreds of times. In fact, I think it'd be accurate to say that I prayed it thousands of times. We said it a lot, not just as a family at home, but in church gatherings and funerals and weddings. And I mean, the Lord's Prayer, you know, it, it, there was a reason. I memorized it at such, such an early age. Um, but yet, what is it Jesus was pointing out in this passage? He's saying, avoid meaningless repetition. And yet, unfortunately, that's kind of what uh, many people have done with the Lord's Prayer. If they've just made it something that, that it's like a pass code or something or other that, that in order to get God's attention, you just got to recite the words in the right order and, and presto change, oh, God's going to respond. Jesus didn't give us that prayer to memorize so as to recite it in a meaningless way time after time after time. That's not why he gave us that prayer. He gave it to us as a sample to keep us from vain repetition. And so let's look at that. Let's, let's briefly look at that a little bit better. The best known prayer in the Bible being what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And uh, it starts out by, he says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. Notice how Jesus is he's teaching how we are to address God, our creator, our Father. He doesn't use something real formal like uh, our most powerful, almighty creator of the universe. That's not the sample of what Jesus gives. He says, our Father. Kind of reminds me of the way kids are sometimes. Now, my kids, you know, they're, you know, it was a lot of years ago, my kids were born. But my grandson the other day, he spends a day and sometimes a night, you know, you know, fairly frequently over at our house. And the other day I came home from work and I parked the motorcycle in the garage and I took my helmet off and, and walked in the house door. And I wasn't but two steps you know, up the staircase, 
And my grandson, Bo, who is four years old, he's a couple months away from turning five, he met me halfway on the steps, and he was staring into my eyes pretty intently. And, uh, you know, kind of, kind of shocked me as I was coming up the steps, and there his face and his eyes were looking right at me. And he says, Papa, play with me. And, and I, like I said, I was a little bit startled, you know, by, by you know, his directness and all. And, and so I didn't say anything for a second or two. And so he, re, he repeated it. He said, Papa, play with me. And, uh, you know, um, I, I said, what? you know, I just got home. I haven't even taken my shoes off. And I've got stuff in my pockets. I want to unload my pockets. So he immediately went to work. He was unloading my pockets right there on the steps you know, pulling stuff out and calling it what it was and laying it down. And so he was going to help me so that I could play with him. But the way that he addressed me is he calls me Papa. He doesn't refer to me as being the patriarch of the Fangman family in this particular location. He doesn't refer to that. He does, doesn't refer to me as senior pastor Fangman, you know, or founding senior pastor Fangman. He, he, does, he doesn't say Mr. Fangman. He does, doesn't say, he just says Papa. Just says Papa. It's because there's a relationship that has been established, you know, for a long time now. And, and he knows he can come to me and he can talk to me at any time. And so that's what he was doing. And he just he didn't beat around the bush at all. He just put it out there. Well, Jesus is saying that, that when we, we pray to our Father in heaven, let's just call him what he is. He is our Father, our Father who art in heaven. And, and then he goes on and he says, hallowed be your name. That, that is an expression of worship, you know, where you recognize that God is set apart from all else. God is pure, completely sinless. It's, it's an expression of adoration and worship to him. So prayer is not just referring to God and our relationship with him, but it's, it's exalting him for who he is. And then you see the words, your kingdom come. How often do you ever pray for the church? That, that's embedded in the Lord's prayer. We're praying for his kingdom here on earth. And that means we should be praying for the church. We should be praying for pastors. We should be praying for workers in the harvest. We should be praying for missionaries. That should be a regular part of our prayers. And he, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Recognizing the fact that we are dependent upon God for our daily provisions. Even the most basic of things, things like bread for the table or water to drink. Recognize that and, and reference that in our prayers and in, in just asking him to continue and expressing gratitude for what he does. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He's talking here about relationships. We should pray about our relationships, you know, starting right in our own family with our children, with our spouse, but including our neighbors and our coworkers. You know, we should pray about relationships and that we are merciful in these relationships. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We pray for protection. 
because there is a very real spiritual war that is going on. And the devil, he, he's playing for keeps. And, uh, but, you know, we've got the Lord to call upon and we should be calling upon him and praying and calling upon him for protection in the middle of it all. You see, when you break down the Lord's Prayer, it becomes apparent. It's not meaningless stuff. It's not ritualistic, you know, stuff all jammed together in a big long sentence to be, you know, recited over and over and over again in a ritualistic sort of way. No, it's meaningful. Jesus said each part of it for a reason. And look at what's smack dab in the middle of it all, and that is what was in verse 10. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to be praying for God's will. That is to be a regular part of our prayer lives. I mean, do you see what's happening here? A regular part of what we pray to the Lord about should focus on praying that God's will be done in the world around us. But Jesus wasn't just saying that we should pray this in regards to God's will out there. It all starts right here. God's will right here within our own life. Here's a passage where, where uh, Paul is talking about prayers in regards to the will of God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. It says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. You see, it's biblical for us to be praying for God's will. We pray for insight in God's will in people's lives, in our friends' lives, in our church leaders' lives, in our spouse's life, in our children's life. But we also are praying for God's will and the insight and discernment into that will in our own life as well. When you say, thy will be done, you're basically asking God to help you to see that that is done starting right here and then radiating out into the rest of the world. What does that mean? What does that look like, God's will to be done? Well, don't forget the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. If we want to know what thy will be done means, then we can look and we can see where those same exact words are used elsewhere in the Bible, and it will give us insight. And there is one place where those exact words words are found in the same order. And it's in the very same book, Matthew. 20 chapters later, Matthew chapter 26. So let's, let, let me read this for you. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. It says, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here, while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and went along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and he prayed, my father, if it is not possible for the cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Those are the same exact words. May your will be done. Your will be done. That's the same thing as what he said in the Lord's Prayer. And then you go a couple more verses. He prays the same prayer again, a third time that you find in that text. Jesus not only taught these words, but here we see him using them in a real-life situation that he was involved in. By the way, this is one of the strongest arguments for the exclusivity of Jesus as far as salvation goes. You know, because people a lot of times will complain about, you know, who are we to say Jesus is the only way to heaven? Jesus is the only way to God. Well, I mean, Jesus did say as much, didn't he, in John 14? No one sees the Father except through him, John 14, um, verse 6. Uh, but you look at this particular passage of Scripture What was it Jesus was praying? He says, if it is possible, let this cup, talking about this cup of suffering, let it pass from me, but yet not as I will, but your will be done. Well, see, the reality of the matter is it wasn't possible for this cup to pass from Jesus because God, the Father, knew this was the only way. This was the only way salvation was going to be able to be possible for humanity, is if Jesus did this. And, and so, yeah, he wasn't gonna let this cup, you know, pass from him. In his humanity, Jesus didn't wanna suffer all of this, and you can understand why. But because it was God's will, he did it. He went to the cross. And this is, you know, why Jesus could accurately on another occasion say this in John chapter 6. Verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus knew all along he was on a mission. His life was to be lived for the will of God. And that's the way he approached living life. Understand something. Prayer is not Bending God our way to bless our will. Let me say that again. Prayer is not a matter of of trying to bend God our way and convince him to bless our will. Rather, prayer is bending us his way to be living in the middle of his will. That's what prayer is about. Prayer is is about, Lord, lead me to your will. Help me to understand. This is the course of action I'm considering, but if this isn't the right one, please, Lord, show me that. Help me to understand your will, what you want me to be doing with my life. 
That involves the big things in life, the big decisions in life, but that also involves the daily things, the smaller decisions in life. Each of us, when we look back over our shoulder, each of us needs to be having Gethsemane moments in our life. You know, where we find ourselves wrestling with something, but then it's a matter of surrender, saying, Lord, yet not my will, but your will be done. Each of us needs to have that approach, that attitude that characterizes our life. That's an important part of what genuine heartfelt prayer helps to accomplish, where our will gets set aside in preference to his will. It's not easy to do, and I'm certainly not claiming that it is easy to do. But that's why prayer is an important part of the equation. We need to pray for clarity that the Lord will help us to see, but we also need to pray for his help that the Lord will help us to do what we see to be his will. Yeah, that's what prayer, a big part of prayer is. Now, what I want to do is I want to close the message and lead into our time of communion with uh, dipping into one of the Psalms. Um, the, the book of Psalms, one of the reasons I look like the book of Psalms so much is that so many of the Psalms are, are just packed with emotion. There's lots of expression that is found. And this particular one is certainly no exception to that especially the first few verses of Psalm 40. It starts out like this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. You see, what the psalm writer is basically expressing is something that many of us could be expressing. Now here we, at some point in time in our life, we found ourselves in a bad way. We were sinking in the, the muck and mire of sin and things didn't look very promising. They didn't look very good. And we cried out for help and the Lord rescued us. And he lifted us out of that, that sin, out of the muck and the mire. And he put our feet on solid ground, on the rock. And now our mouths are filled with praise, with a song of, of praise in expressing that. And he goes on, the psalm, psalm writer goes on to say that uh, the testimony of all this is going to influence other people. I mean, look at the next verse. It says, many will see and fear and Put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. So you see, it's going to have a rippling effect. You know, the, the fact that God delivered us, he rescued us, it's going to have a rippling effect in, in touching the lives of other people. And, and what I especially want you to see in regards to what it is that we're talking about here today, in, in a couple of verses later, verse 8, he says this, I desire to do your will, oh my God. In view of what God had done, in view of the fact that God had swooped in and, and rescued him from, from a desperate situation and put his feet on, on solid ground, on a rock, a firm foundation, 
You know, the psalm writer is saying, okay, I'm here to do your will, Lord. Whatever it is, that's the way I want to live my life now. And that ought to be the attitude that we have. In view of all that God has done for us, the least we can do is we can live for him. That ought to be the heartbeat of our lives. That ought to be the heartbeat of our prayer lives. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for being a God who cares. A God who would do the unthinkable in the sinning of your son to pay such a critically high price to make it possible for us to be forgiven of our sin. And while we eat this bread and we drink from this cup, we are reminded of the body and the blood of Christ and the sacrifice that was made. The fact that there was no other way to secure our salvation but for him to do what he did on our behalf on the cross. And Lord, we're thankful for that. And in response to that, Lord, help us through your spirit to be surrendered completely. Help us to have the attitude of the psalm writer in Psalm 40, where he basically says, I'm here to do your will. Might that be the attitude and might that be the heart's prayer that each one of us have moving forward in our lives. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.